Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm really proud of this podcast today because this podcast is part of a really ambitious project we've got. We've commissioned one of our most expensive and best documentaries yet on the bombing war in the Second World War. This month marked the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Dresden, the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Fortsheim, less well known about, but even more devastating, even more deadly per capita than the assault on Dresden. So we want to look at the bombing war right the way through from 1939 with its leaflet drops. We filmed in Coventry to talk about the German blitz against that town in 1940, 80 years ago this year, and all the way up to 1945. What did the bombing do? What did it achieve? Did it help us to bring the war to a conclusion quicker than might have been the case otherwise? We got some big hitters in this documentary. We got James Holland, we got Max Hastings, we got Paul Beaver, we got Victoria Taylor, we've got Victor Gregg talking about Dresden, we got all sorts of people. So I'm really, really proud of this documentary. Proud of the whole team for getting it out. It hasn't been easy. This podcast is accompanying that. This is the unedited and brilliant James Holland talking to me at length about the bomber war. And it was excerpts from this interview that we then incorporate into our documentary. This is James Holland. He's been on the pod many times. He's the boss of the Chalk Valley History Festival, the Glastonbury for history here in the UK. His best-selling book on D-Day was on everybody's Christmas list last year. And he is currently punching out a new book, this time on the battle for Sicily. But he took time out very kindly to talk to me about the bomber offensives of the Second World War, strategic bombing in the Second World War. You can watch the documentary if you go to historyhit.tv. If you go over there, it's like Netflix for history. You sign up, little subscription, but you get to avoid that subscription if you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, and then you get six weeks for free. So you can watch whatever you like, free of charge. If you don't like it, you don't subscribe after that. So please head over there and do that. Use the code POD6. In the meantime, here is the brilliant James Holland. James Holland, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Always I, a joy. Always, that's freak. You, are, you, I think you got the most most uh, numbers of visits ever, actually. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, what, why do we? Why? What is it with bombers in between the walls? Everything's bombers. The cinemas are about bombing. The politicians, the planners, everyone's obsessed with bombing. Well, the bombing really comes into form right at the end of the of, of the First World War in 1918. They well. Before that, there's other bombers, but but there is a bomber, strategic bomber force that the RF developed in in the summer of 1918, which goes you know far into into Europe and attacks. And suddenly there is this this new technology that planes, that aircraft are developing very rapidly, and suddenly you have this means of dropping a comparatively large amount of ordnance deep behind your own lines or deep behind enemy lines, and so that is. Um, very intoxicating and frightening for people. And in the in, in, in between the wars, what you get is lots of people writing about this. So you get sort of, you know, Duhe, who is uh, an Italian kind of big thinker on this stuff. You get uh, um, various, there's a sort of whole school of kind of sort of bombing strategizing in the United States. Um, ditto in Germany, they're thinking about it too. And of course, in, in, in the RF here in Britain and elsewhere. So, you know, it's just... How do you stop bombers? And what people haven't really worked out is is 
what exactly the shape of bombing war is going to happen. We all know that if there is another conflict, bombers are going to be involved. And there are the doomsayers who, you know, like Stanley Baldwin famously saying, the bombers will always get through. Um, and there are others who go, well, no, I don't, you know, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. And, you know, what you need is to develop a really good fighter force and all the rest of it. And out of that, in, in the case of Britain, for example, you know, develops the, the world's first um, coordinated air defence system developed by Dowding, you know, known as the Dowding system, begun when he's still in charge of research and development, but then sort of fervoured when he becomes... Uh, um, first commander in chief of fighter command in 1938. So you know the, the people are, are just really thinking about it, but but bombing is absolutely the forefront. I think mainly just because it just seems so ghastly, it seems so awful. And then, as if anyone wanted, you know, was doubting it, you have Guernica. Um, which seems to kind of prove all the doomsayers and, and all that they're saying. Uh, and Guernica in the in the um, in the Spanish Civil War. I mean, obviously the circumstances are that it's this small town in northern Spain, uh, which is very very poorly defended, and of course the bombers can run amok. And of course. When people are looking at it, they're sort of going, oh, my gosh, how awful, how awful, you know, how terrible. Look what's going to happen. This is the future of warfare. But, of course, over Guernica, there's literally no defence whatsoever. Um, and what that does, I think, is accelerate thinking about how you defend against bombers. But, you know, bombing is absolutely part of, in the case of Britain and America, um, it is absolutely part strategic bombing. And what I mean by strategic bombing is bombing where your bomber force is operating independent of any other forces, so independent of the Navy, independent of ground forces. That bomber force um, is absolutely key to Western Allied thinking and Allied strategy because they see it as a means of crippling your enemy without having to throw a whole generation of young men into the furnace of, of frontline action, which was obviously the kind of nightmare of the First World War. Uh, what tell, so when war breaks out in thirty nine? What about the first battle that we always seem to overlook? What was that? What was the British RAF and the French Air Force uh, doing in terms of strategic? Were they doing any strategic bombing up up until May nineteen forty? Yeah, so what happens is they start off, the RAF sends over Bomber Command on the 3rd of September, and actually one of the people involved in that is Guy Gibson, later commanding the, the, the dams raid in, in May 1943. Um, and, and they do go and drop some bombs near Wilhelmshaven. Um, but then they decide, actually, they're not going to drop bombs, they're just going to drop leaflets, um, which is, you know, in retrospect, a really kind of odd decision. So they spend a lot of the first months of the war just flying over Germany, risking life and limb, uh, dropping leaflets going, cool, I wouldn't get involved in this war if I were you, and, you know, whatever you do, don't drop bombs. Um, uh, and, of course, it's completely ineffective. Um, but one of the reasons for this is because the French are really against it, because the French are absolutely terrified of the Luftwaffe. And the Luftwaffe have done this incredibly brilliant thing of completely throwing the wool over the eyes of the head of the Army of the Air, which is the, the French Air Force. So this guy, I can't remember his name, it's going to come off the top of my head, but I can't remember his name, but but he goes over in 1938 to visit the Germany. This is the head of the French Air Force. And he's taken around by Erhard Milk, who is the sort of number two of the Luftwaffe by this stage. Uh, and Milk takes him to this kind of fighter airfield where there's a whole row of Messerschmitt 109 single-engine fighters lined up. And uh, he goes, well, that's all jolly impressive. And, and Milk sort of goes, well, I want to take you to another airfield. So they go to another airfield. And while they've been driving to the next airfield, all the Messerschmitts were taken up and lined up again on, on the second airfield. So by the time... Um, uh, the French commander-in-chief of the Air Force gets back to France. He just sort of goes, oh, my God, you know, we must never go to war with, with Germany because we'll, our Air Force will be absolutely annihilated. The Luftwaffe is so huge. Of course, it's absolute lie. I mean, it's, he's just had the wall completely pulled over his eyes. Um, and one of the reasons why the French do so badly when they finally do go into, into the air, air war in, in 1940 um, is because they've split up into separate commands. And although they've got they've got parity with the Germans in terms of actual numbers of aircraft, they think the Germans have got kind of you know, four times the size. Um, so they're on the back foot already. They've got this sort of inferiority complex. Secondly, the structure of the way the French, French um, Air Force is set up, they're set up in these different compartments, these different areas. And um, they, uh, uh, they're, all, they're, they're not sort of coordinated at all. So that one area has complete control in that one area. And has nothing to do with the next one. So, of course, what you're doing is you're dividing your force into effectively penny packets where they're least effective. Whereas the Germans, and they have absolutely, the French have absolutely no air defence system whatsoever. I mean, it's literally just a few. So just running standing patrols, see if you spot the Germans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a sort of, you know, absolutely hopeless. And, of course, the Germans, who are the aggressor, can 
choose when to attack and they can attack en masse. You know, that's very much the kind of always been the German way of war. There's nothing new about Luftwaffe tactics. You know, the, the Schwerpunkt, this kind of idea that you concentrate your forces in one area. So they hurtle over and just literally take out one airfield at a time and destroy them all on the ground because obviously all the French and indeed the RF component can't possibly know when they're coming. So they can't be on the ground, you know, they can't be in the air doing sort of just hoping they bump into the Luftwaffe in the air, kind of patrols all the time. Uh, and that's how they get destroyed. But it's not because the Luftwaffe is manifestly superior in strength and size. I mean, the thing about the Luftwaffe is the Luftwaffe grows organically very much as a, as a what we would now call a tactical air force, i.e. there to support ground operations. Ground operations in, in the German way of war is absolutely centred to their military thinking. It's why their navy is so rubbish, basically. Um, but it's also why the Luftwaffe is just not geared up for a strategic air force. There was a very, very brilliant guy who was the chief of staff of the Luftwaffe, died in 1936 in a, in a flying accident, called, ironically, called General Viva. Uh, and General Viva... Um, was uh, a massive proponent of strategic of creating a strategic air force, a heavy bomber force for for, for the Luftwaffe, um, but then. He learned to fly, wasn't very good at it, crashed in his Heiko 111 and killed himself, ironically. Um, and with him died the, uh, the, the idea of a strategic air force. And instead, uh, um, Ernst Udet, who'd been this amazing fighter race in the First World War and was basically Goering's mate, he was put in charge of procurement. And a guy called um, uh, General Yashonik was made the chief of staff. And Yashonik and, and Udet were both very much sort of cut from the same cloth. And their bag was absolutely dive bombing. Um, and, and the theory behind dive bombing is quite a good one because um, if you dive bomb, you can be more accurate because the point of release is closer to your target than it would be before you started your dive. Um, therefore, you can be more accurate, which means you need less ordnance to do the damage. And all trials of dive bombers, and, the, and obviously I'm talking about Stukas and you know the Ju87, uh, um, seem to look really good. And you know these pilots were getting these amazing levels of accuracy. The problem with it is that you absolutely have to have command of the sky for it to work because the moment your Stuka comes out of its dive, it's basically standing still in the air as it comes out of its dive. You know the air brakes are off and it's slowly trying to go because it's a big old beast it's a single engine plane but I don't know if you've ever seen one but they're they're pretty chunky for a single engine plane which means their rate of climb is incredible and their slow. course is unbelievably predictable yes and so as they come down as they come out so if you're a waiting hurricane or spitfire you're like a kind of kestrel kind of homing down on a or a sparrow hawk on a sparrow um, and, and you know they're easy meat and of course this is what happens over Dunkirk when the Luftwaffe are sent in to kind of destroy the BEF and make sure they don't get home I mean you have any number of people who was sort of you know on a destroyer going back to Dover oh yeah I saw Stukas came down He's, I saw columns of water a thousand feet in the air uh, and but the point is they live to tell the tale, which is why 338,000 of them got home. You know, hardly any ships were sunk by by air attack. I mean, literally, almost none um, in in the Dunkirk evacuation. And that's because it's incredibly difficult to move a, a, a moving target because you know when you're starting to dive at 6,000 feet, it looks like a pencil, uh, um, sort of wobbling around the sea. But secondly, because they're being pounced on by 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 the RAF, and so that's the big problem with dive bombing as a strategy. The problem for the Luftwaffe is they put all their eggs in one basket and they were developing this very fast, long-range medium bomber called the, uh, the Junkers 88, the Junkers 88. Um, and they suddenly decided, well, you know, well, let's give this dive bombing capabilities too. So they put dive bombing capabilities on it and, and, the, and the good folk at Junkers sort of go do lots of teeth sack and go, well, you know, we can, but it's going to cost you. You know, and it's going to cost you in terms of time, money, um, development, and it's not going to be the plane you originally conceived. It's going to be much slower because it's heavier and all sorts of stuff. Then, I mean, just bonkers. Um, they go, well, we're developing this four-engine bomber, the Heinkel 177. Let's give that dive bombing capabilities. How cool would that be? <laughs> you know, and the people at Heinkel are sort of going, do you know what's really not cool at all? It's a really, really bad idea. And I think the Luftwaffe loses something like 32 of their finest test pilots test fighting this absolute dog of an aircraft that never really gets going uh, and it puts the whole long range bomber force sort of strategy completely on the back burner and they never really develop a long uh, a heavy heavy bomber or a strategic air force as a result which is a problem because in it's the summer of 1940 problem. the German Luftwaffe finds itself fighting a campaign using strategic air power against Britain right yes so it, you know the whole point about the Luftwaffe in 1940 is he's fighting a battle which is absolutely not equipped to fight I mean, you know, it is not prepared for it. It is not, it's never expected to. It's not designed to do that. Um, it's got a commander-in-chief whose tactics are 
absolutely woeful, who is completely dependent on an intelligence picture, which is basically what he wants to hear rather than the reality. So the intelligence is bad. By this stage in the summer of 1940, aircraft production of the Luftwaffe is really not impressive at all. Um, Britain is doing at the very least double the amount of uh, of aircraft production that the, the Luftwaffe is doing. Um, you know, the best ratio, I mean, it's very interesting. July, you take July 1940, for example, 496 Spitfires and Hurricanes made that month uh, um, in Britain, 240 Messerschmitt 109s. So that's less than half. And that is the best ratio at any point in the Battle of Britain for the Luftwaffe. And also, they don't have a civilian repair organisation like we do. And of course, because our airfields are spread out all over England and southern England, where there's a concentration in southeast England, um, they're much easier to get that repair network done because they haven't got very far to go. If all your fighter airfields are in a, in a, in a clump in the Pas de Calais, then you've got a massive problem trying to repair them because all your 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 infrastructure is back in Germany. You've got to get it all the way across France. So their their ability to kind of keep up with the pace of losses in the Battle of Britain, the Luftwaffe that is, is really, really bad, whereas ours is really good. So we start the Battle of Britain with whatever it is, 640 single-engine fighters at the beginning of July 1940. And by the end of October 1940, we're kind of, you know, knocking 800. Whereas Germany, in the beginning of July, has 740 single-engine fighters, but only about 200 by October the 31st. What was the, just briefly, what was the what was the German plan in the Battle of Britain? Well, the, the plan of the German Battle of Britain is, is, is to destroy the RAF. And they... they you know, they're so far short of achieving that. It's tragic. I mean, it, well, it's not for us. It's really good news. But, I mean, you know, it, it's just absolutely astonishing how bad they do. You know, anyway, I mean, I remember talking to Hans Eckhard Bob, who was a kind of, you know, great German fighter race, and he sort of go, I tell you, James, you know, it was a draw. It's like, <laughs> wasn't you know you had your asses whip mate i mean you absolutely did i mean you know that it was it was hopeless i mean their intelligence picture was terrible they had no concept that we had three you know four commands i mean they had no idea that there was a difference between coastal command um bomber command and fighter command you know so on the on day one of you know eagle day the 13th of august 1940 they go off and they sort of go yeah you know we've hit watchford and you know we've attacked destroyed you know x number of spitfires they didn't go anywhere near a spitfire airfield i mean it's just it's absolutely hopeless they've got the world's most sophisticated radar and they don't use it because they're owned by the navy there's no joined up thinking whatsoever you have in germany you have the okw which is this um combined services general staff which is an inherently good idea but it's not used as that. It's just used as Hitler's mouthpiece. So there's kind of no joined up thinking. You know, the plan for Operation Sea Lion, which is the proposed um, invasion of Britain. I mean, it's just, it's just bonkers. I mean, it's absolutely insane. So after his big triumph in, in Berlin at the beginning of July, following the fall of, of France and the Low Countries, um, Hitler retreats to the Berghof, which is in itself incredibly unhelpful because it's very difficult to get to. It's in the Bavarian Alps down there on the, near Salzburg on the Austrian border. Um, and, he, and, you know, he gets his, his naval guys to come along and they say, OK, so what's the plan for invading Britain? They go, well, my fury, you know, what we think is, a, you know, we should be attacked on a, on a really narrow front somewhere kind of, you know, 30 yards either side of Deal. And he goes, OK, well, you go off and do your plans. And then the army turn up and they go, well, my fury, you know, what we think is we, we should attack on a kind of 90 mile front from Lyme Regis to Deal. Uh, and he goes, well, off and go and do your plans. Uh, and, you know, then Goering turns up and he says, well, my fury, you know, we're just going to smash the RAF. I mean, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, there's gonna, they're going to use, bar- they haven't got enough, they haven't got any kind of invasion barges. They haven't got landing craft as such. So they're going to take barges from the Rhine, but not enough of them are motorised. So they're going to couple three together. One with the leading one will have an engine, the other two won't. I mean, what happens when you actually hit the beach? I mean, how, how does that work? I mean, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's just, it's hopeless. Is it also just at this point quite hard to deliver enough munitions to the, enough ordnance to a desired target on the ground? 100%, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, this is the thinking, because, because the Germans are the aggressors, because they're starting it, really. Although, I mean, I still haven't answered your original question about, about what the RF was doing in terms of bombing in the first part of the war, which I'll come back to you, Dan, I promise. But, but I mean... Twin engine bombers delivering about a payload of about a ton of ordnance. Just, you know, they just don't have enough bombers. I mean, you know, if you really want to destroy a city, send over three and a half thousand heavy bombers, you know, when the winds are favourable over some consecutive nights, you know, and you will destroy destroy a city, particularly if your anti-aircraft defences aren't up to much. You know, sending over kind of, you know, a hundred twin engine Heinkel 111s and Dornier 17s, of course it's going to cause damage, but it's not, 
you know, it's very, very difficult to knock out an airfield. So their plan is they just think they don't understand that Britain has a coordinated air defence system. They, they don't realise that the RAF can see them coming and take off from their air, from their airfields and be ready for them and be higher in the sky than they are and use the sun and advantages of height. Uh, and pounce down on, on their fighter escorts. They, they don't get any of that. They don't, they don't understand the capabilities or, or how the RAF is structured and organised. So they assume that what they're going to do is kind of maraud over just as they did in France a, you know, a month or two earlier uh, and everything will be tickety-boo. And of course, when they get over, the airfields are empty of fighter planes because we know they're coming. Um, and also all the airfields, are they're not all clamped together. They're all grass. And actually to destroy a 100-acre greenfield site where you don't have runways, actually it's really difficult. And because we've kind of predicted what will happen, we've also got control rooms sort of three miles in a village shop, you know, hidden in a village sort of somewhere away from the airfield because you don't actually need to, strictly speaking, to be on the airfield as well. And we've also kind of prepared huge piles of soil and scalpings and stuff so that if there are many bomb craters, you just fill them in and put a steam radar over them and you know, you're good to go again. I mean, I remember talking to Tom Neal. I mean, you know Tom, or did know Tom. Um, sadly, no longer with us. But I remember him sort of saying, you know, that he took off from North Weald Airfield, just north of London, right on the corner of the M11 and the M25 as it is now, uh, on the 3rd of September 1940. And he said, you know, I looked down and there was North Weald, the whole place covered in smoke uh, and he said and I thought how am I ever going to get back down again and I said well you obviously did he said oh yes yes we all did actually uh, we just got down and dodged, dodged the potholes one airfield knocked out for more than 24 hours out of 138 in the entire battle run I mean that's not good that's not a good rate of success what, what is the sort of approximate size of the German bomber force during the battle of Britain well, it's only about a thousand you know, it's not that many. You know, not, and that thousand is not going to be capable of. You know, they're not capable of sending over a thousand bombers at any one time because you know they're not all serviceable, um, combat ready at any one time. So, I mean, really, I mean, the, the amount of times raids are single raids of over a hundred bombers are sent over is you can literally count on one hand. I mean, the you know Battle of Britain Day, fifteenth of September, nineteen forty, the biggest raid of the day. There's two big raids on South East London. The biggest raid of the day comes at about three thirty in the afternoon, and. Yeah, it's 300 aircraft, of which 100 are bombers, 200 are ME-110 twin-engine fighters and single-engine 109s. Uh, against them are 335 Spitfires and Hurricanes. So this idea that we're kind of, you know, massively outnumbered is just rubbish. You know, and, and when, when Churchill's standing next to, next to Keith Park in the Uxbridge bunker with his unlit cigar says, where are all the reserves? And, and you know, it's always sort of, there are none, in this kind of sort of portentous way. What he's saying is... But he's not saying it in a portentous way. He's just saying, all the reserves, you know, there aren't any reserves because I've sent all my squadrons up. Um, what he doesn't say is there's another 400 single-edged fighters elsewhere in the country that we've chosen, you know, we've just chosen not to concentrate them all in southeast England. So it's nothing like as bad as everyone makes out. So the airfield, the attack on the airfield doesn't work in the RAF. Is that why Hitler, does Hitler, is in frustration? Why do they turn on London? Why do, they, why do we see this transition to bombing of cities, the, the beginning of the blitz? Yes. Yeah. Well, what happens is, is, is bomber. Okay, so this takes us back to your original point about, about what, what, what is Bomber Command doing. Well, Bomber Command. So just let me just answer that very quickly. So, so Bomber Command. The, the French are really nervous because they're so they've got this huge inferiority complex about the size of the Luftwaffe, which is completely mistaken. Um, they are very nervous about the, about Britain and indeed French bombers going over and bombing German targets in case they get um, tit for tat raids, which you know the last thing the French want is, I don't know, Toulouse or Paris to be obliterated so they're really nervous about this so they're going please 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 don't don't go and bomb germany so as part of our alliance we go okay fine we'll drop leaflets then um so so that's hence one of the reasons why we have all the leaflet dropping um the flip side of that is that what it does do is give a lot of people in bomber command a chance to kind of build up hours and experience and all the rest of it so it's not entirely wasted effort I think it's the night of the 17th of May, if I remember rightly, is when, when British bombers go and attack German targets for the first time in Germany with bombs um, since the very first day of the war. Um, and that is because at this stage, you know, France is losing and uh, France's ability to kind of sort of um, uh, um, argue the case for not for bombing German targets has gone. Um, and so we start, uh, and, you know, literally every night after that, that there's, the weather is up for it. Bomber Command is going over and attacking targets in Germany. Um, and by the beginning of 4th of September, we have bombed Berlin four times. So it is, you know, it is true that 
the Luftwaffe accidentally drop a few, one bomber drops a few bombs on, on London on the, whatever it was, night of the 23rd, 24th of August. Uh, um, but that was accidental. The tit for tat that the, the bomber command do is these four raids on, on Berlin. Now, it doesn't cause a huge amount of damage to Berlin, but it is still a massive shock to the German people, and particularly the people in the capital, who assumed that the war was sort of largely over after the fall of France. You know, this isn't the rhetoric. You know, this is what we've been told. Um, and so Hitler has to retaliate. Now, you'd have thought, um, you know, a sort of concentrated weekend of bombing of London in, you know, kind of honour has been salvaged as far as he's concerned, but not a bit of it. You know, they start on Saturday, the 7th of September, and they keep going till the middle of May 1941 uh, with a policy and a strategy that frankly makes no sense whatsoever um, and only makes the life of fighter command much easier because the moment they turn away from the fight, the fight for airfields, when you're attacking airfields, because of the, the dispersed nature of, of RAF airfields in southern England, you can't really kind of concentrate your force on one. You have to kind of send over smaller forces to attack kind of Tangmere and Hawkinge and, and North Weald at the same time. And that, of course, splits the effort of fighter command trying to defend it. It's also harder to predict which airfield they're going for. You can see the raids building up on, on radar and stuff. But you can't quite tell where they're going to go until the last minute, which means it's much harder. You, you can make sure you're off the ground, but actually effectively attacking that attacking force in turn is much harder. The moment there's a huge, great raid going to London, it's absolutely blindingly obvious where they're going to go. And so you can organise your fighter defence much more effectively because you know you can predict where they're going to go. So actually, those daylight raids... On on London in September, they're really easy for Keith Park to predict, which means that he can just peck away at them all the way from the moment they cross the Kent coast. There's pairs of, of squadrons, um, Hurricane squadrons attacking the bombers, Spitfire squadrons attacking the fighters, who are able to, because they know what's going to happen, they can they can get up quickly. They've got a greater rate of climb than the Hurricane, so they can get up to kind of 28,000 feet, which means they've got the twin advantages of height and manoeuvring yourself so that you've got the sun behind you, which is you know two of the kind of key things you want when you're doing air-to-air -air combat and attacking another. Um, and so the whole strategy is just a total mess and it's kind of desperation and it, and it kind of, you know, the blitz is just sort of, right, okay, well, these bastards, you know, we haven't got them on the ground, so we'll show them, you know, we'll show them what it's like. You know, they think they can come and attack the right. We'll, we'll, we'll browbeat them with, with bombing, but they're just not equipped for this. And, and you know, the, rate of order, the level of orders is just not enough. So it's a, it just doesn't work. And all they're doing is expending vast numbers of bombers, which they're going to need, like, billion when they goes to the invasion of Soviet Union, achieving not very much, um, using vast amounts of fuel and ordnance, which, frankly, could be better used elsewhere. Um, and and it's, just, it's just a total sham of a strategy um, conducted with poor tactics and operationally makes no sense whatsoever. So throughout that winter, not 1940-41, it doesn't... It doesn't effectively impair Britain's ability to make Not war? Not really, no. no. Um, or or no. loosen Churchill's grip on power? Which... No, no, all it does is, is teach us valuable... I mean, obviously, when I say all it does, it kills 42,000 British civilians. You know, that's a huge number. You know, that's more than has ever been killed in a... civilians that have been killed in a, in a, in a British conflict before... Um, outside of the civil war, so, you know that that's that's a tragedy and it's terrible. And obviously, certain factories are hit, and that's a bit of a pain in the backside. But in terms of our industrial output, our industrial output actually increases massively over the winter of 1940-41. Um, doesn't really have too much effect on us at all. Um, and what it does is teach us invaluable lessons on how to effectively bomb other cities. I mean, you know, the classic case of that is, is of course, it's Coventry in November 1940. Uh, and what the Luftwaffe do and do very effectively on that particular night is come in two waves. So you drop your high explosives to start off with. The old timber buildings in the centre of centre of Coventry. It's light wind, lots of moon, so you can see your target very clearly. You then come down with a second wave of lots of incendiaries. And the incendiaries... Um, then fan the flames that have been created by the high explosives in the first wave and the wind just sort of gently kind of sort of pushes it all in the right direction. Suddenly you've got a firestorm and you've got the centre of Coventry gutted. You know, those precise tactics were turned onto Hamburg in end of July 1943. Um, and, you know, famously, Bomber Harris, who wasn't Bomber Harris at that point, but was... was um, Air Vice Marshal Arthur Harris, working at the Air Ministry, stood on the roof in Whitehall watching the fires on the East End and said, you know, you will reap what you sow and made that solemn vow there. And boy, did he deliver. 
I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, speaking of, I mean, was Coventry an important moment, particularly in British policymaking, or was it just the whole of... of, of yeah, I think it was. I think it really is. I think it was really shocking. And I think, you know, what was shocking about it was that suddenly you've got this, this, this very old medieval city, which is, a, you know, which was by all accounts a very beautiful city. Um, and, you know, it's completely gutted. And although the numbers of lives lost is in a big scheme of things, you know, it's hundreds rather than thousands. I mean, it's 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 comparatively small. It's still a real shock. I mean, everyone sort of goes, "Oh my God, okay, this is what what can happen." And I think, but I think what it does is stiffen the result. I mean, just okay, this is how you do it. And and if you really want to kind of have a big effect, you need to destroy entire cities. I mean, that's that's the effect it has on the RAF particularly those at Air Ministry, those who are kind of running the RAF's war effort, uh, and particularly those at Bomber Command. So when does, when does Britain sh- shift, when does Britain begin that, that policy of trying to eradicate German cities? Uh, pretty much from the word go. Um, Ludwell Hewitt is the, um, is, is the, um, the, the head of the um, Bomber Command, and then it's uh, Sir Richard Pearce. And Sir Richard Pearce does this sort of Chatham House rules meeting with a whole load of sort of city bigwigs, I think in late 1941, if I remember. And he makes a comment, he's, he's a, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's worth the effect of, um, you know, people think that we're just hitting German industrial targets and that we, we worry about... Um, killing German civilians. I just want to assure you that we have no such worries at all. Um, and if to destroy the German war effort, it means flattening entire cities, that's what we're going to do. And the problem we have is at the start of the war, we, we just can't bomb accurately. That we, we, You know, bomb sites are in their infancy. Uh, the Americans have developed the Norden bomb site in, in the early 1930s, but at this stage of the war, they're, they're not prepared to give the, the technical data to us to develop ourselves so we're having to develop our own and we do this becomes a blackett site known as the number 14 um, bomb site which is every bit as good as the northern really um uh, and very effective but it doesn't that's not kicking in in 1941 you know we've got mainly twin engine aircraft um short sterlings and, and halifaxes are just coming in but the halifax is sort of hurried into production because there is felt there is this need for a heavy bomber and to start off with it's a bit of a dog um and so there's all sorts of teething issues in terms of kind of strategic bombing in 1941 um uh, and then there is the Butt Report to the summer of 1941, where it is proved that despite um, the claims of, of the uh, of the bomber crews, the reality is is that 
hardly any bombs are falling, you know, within a matter of five miles of their of their their target, let alone right on the right on the barrel. Uh, and this is a huge blow for Bomber Command, for Bomber Command's morale. And there's lots of stuff in the press about it and conversations in Parliament. And, you know, really, is this the right strategy? We put so many of our eggs in one basket with Bomber Command. You know, we put so much money and time and effort into developing this bomber force. But, uh, and for all for very, very good reasons, to, you know, because it's a, bombers are a force multiplier. You know, they're, they're a means of um, saving the lives of those on the ground. You know, strategy of, of, the, uh, of, of, of Britain is to have as few people as you possibly can in the front line at the actual bare coal face of war on the ground. That's the strategy. You know, we are not going to have the slaughter of the First World War again. That's not going to happen. We're going to use science, modernity, global reach, technology to do a lot of those hard yards. And absolutely integral to that is bombing. So suddenly at the end of 1941, it's all looking a bit kind of, oh, okay, so this isn't quite working. So then the policy is the internal policy, not the public policy. And the internal policy is why Richard Pierce is making comments in this sort of Chatham House Rules meeting is, okay, well, we're going to say we're going to hit marshalling yards and targets. Or actually, what we're really going to do is just pace them and flatten them because actually by destroying civilians you're destroying the workforce by destroying towns you're destroying you know nodal points you're you're uh, um you're reducing germany's ability to actually man and operate those factories so that's almost as good as doing the factories isn't it you know that's how that you can see how they convince themselves but of course technology doesn't stand still and vast amounts of effort are put into research and development within bomber command within within the raf um uh, and things start to advance and and bomber harris takes over from pearson in february 1942 and at, at that time is when the lancasters are starting to come in of course lancaster to a certain extent is a miracle weapon you know because it can carry well proves it can later carry 10 tons but it can carry comfortably kind of four tons of uh, of ordnance which is so much more than anything else um it, it's pretty fast it can fly it can if it really needs to fly kind of nearly 300 miles an hour uh um it's got long range um and it's a pretty effective bomber for 1942 what he doesn't have is navigational aids that you need but they're improving hasn't got hasn't kind of honed the techniques but in the summer of 1940 comes into the the pathfinder force which is this sort of force that goes ahead of the main bomber force and 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 and, and is better trained for accurate bombing they're the ones that have all the you know the, as new navigational techniques like h2s and oboe are coming in those tech those those bits of equipment are given to the Pathfinder force so that they can kind of, you know, be the vanguard. They can mark it with flares, the target, and that improves accuracy. Um, and the accuracy of the bomber force by the spring of 1943, by March 1943, which is when Harris finally feels he's ready to launch his all-out strategic air war against Germany, you know, quite late in the war, in the big scheme of things, you know, in the last two years of the war. You know, we just think that kind of bomber command emerges kind of fully formed. It doesn't. It's this incredibly long, treacherous process of, of starting from kind of almost nothing to becoming this force of Lancasters and heavy bombers that it is by by the sort of middle of 1943, one that can destroy Hamburg in July 1943. It's quite a process. And Harris always says right from the word go, you know, from the moment he takes over in February 1942, this is going to take a year. I need a year. And also don't forget that this time in the summer of 1942, we've got the embryonic 8th Air Force from the Americans coming in. They've now joined the war. You know, so airfields need to be handed over to them. They've got heavy bombers. They've got B-24s um, and B-17s flying fortresses, um, which again, don't have the payload of... of um, of the Lancasters, but they're going to be operating it by day, so they need to be better armed. That causes more drag, improves, you know, worsens the weight. Um, so that's why they're not carrying quite so much ordnance as a Lancaster, which is operating at night and doesn't need, doesn't think it needs to be quite so well protected at the time. Uh, and so they've got to have airfields as well. So that eats into the kind of heavy airfields that you would need for, you know, with proper concrete runways that Harris needs for his heavy bomber force. So you, you know, it just takes time. And there's all these navigational aids. Um, and it's only really by 1944 that you've got a bomber force, which is 100% heavy bombers, uh, apart from the mosquitoes, which are flying ahead and pathfinding and all the rest of it, um, and, and has the accuracy to kind of bomb pretty precisely by 1940 standards um, on any target that it wants to. 
But in 943, what's his, what does Harris go for first? Is it the Ruhr? Yeah, so it's the Ruhr, and that might make perfect sense because, uh, first of all, it's it's in, in Western Germany, so it's quite close to Britain, comparatively. Um, and that is the industrial heartland. It's on the Rhine, it's where all the, you know, near where all the coal fields are. That's where the big industrial centres, you know, we're talking about Dortmund, Essen, Dusseldorf, these kind of places. Um, and, and they are just absolutely hammered. I mean, hammered. I mean, the, the Germans literally do not know what's hit them. Um, and it's only going to get worse because you have Operation Gomorrah, um, which I've already mentioned, the, the attack on Hamburg. And Hamburg is, is just, it, it's just the single most horrific bombing sequence of raids in Western Europe in the war, I think. I mean, you know, 42,600 people killed in Operation Gomorrah in Hamburg. You know, when you think the whole of the Blitz, that number is... That, that, so that... That is greater than the total number of British civilians killed in the entire Blitz in the war, in the whole war. You know, so that is the scale of it. I mean, it, it is, it is, you know, eighty percent of Germany's second city is destroyed. I mean, that's like eighty percent of Manchester being eradicated, just like that. I mean, it, it is horrendous. One point two million displaced. I mean, th- this is on a scale that is just off the radar compared to what the Luftwaffe is doing in London and elsewhere and Portsmouth and Liverpool in 1940-1941. Well, did it work, though? I mean, what, what, was Harris just trying to kill Germans and, and mess the place up, or, or was he trying to reduce arms production, shake the, uh, shake the grip of the Nazi, Nazi government? I mean, did, uh, by any of the metrics, is it actually working? Yeah, I think it is, and I think it works. I think it works a lot more effective. It's much more effective than the the the, the would have us believe. I mean, if you just just think about it, okay, you, you you know, Essen is where the Krupp works are. Okay, Krupp works are just hammered and hammered and hammered, and the and the the plants are progressively destroyed. So you know, they go from sort of hundred percent efficiency to eighty percent to sixty percent to forty percent to thirty percent. You know, progressively. Just think about just that one city, Essen. If that city is 75% destroyed, how effective do you think that city is going to be in producing tanks and aircraft and U-boats and all the rest of it? It, 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 just, it just physically can't be. What, what's the net result of that? The net result is that Germany is going to have to disperse. Germany has already got a massive transport problem. You know, It doesn't have enough fuel, so it's completely dependent on railways. Um, and coal, and the coal that it does have is is massively over overused. You're using coal to make synthetic fuel because that's the only way you can do it. Um, that is an incredibly expensive process and completely counterproductive. So dispersing your industrial effort, your war armaments effort, is really not helpful at all. And you're killing lots of civilians. And morale is really bad. And you're affecting all sorts of day-to-day things like electricity, running water, and so on and so forth. So yes, it absolutely is. I mean, I, th- I think the thing the thing is, when one is considering Nazi Germany in the Second World War, you have to think about why people surrender or sue for peace in most wars. And usually, it's because they can't afford it and they're not going to win. You know, that is absolutely the case for Germany in November 1918. You know, they've run out of cash, they're completely broke, everyone's starving, everyone's fed up, and they're not going to win. By that reckoning... The Nazis should have sued for peace in November 1941 at the absolute latest. I mean, if not end of October 1940. But they don't because it's Hitler, because they're Nazis, because, you know, there's a fear of Armageddon, because they've unleashed this absolutely apocalyptic kind of wave of violence in the Eastern Front, where it is an ideological war as well as a kind of traditional war. And they know that they're going to reap what they sow. And so what's the alternative? The alternative is to fight on. Um, Hitler's a kind of black and white kind of guy. You know, it's a thousand year Reich or it's Armageddon. You know, it's up to the will of the German people. It's as simple as that. There's no grey area whatsoever. So they keep going. They just keep going. By anyone's reckoning, the kind of the effects of bomber command should have done what Harris had predicted, what, what Tui Spots, uh, you know, and, and Hap Arnold um, uh, and Ira Aker, you know, the, the US Air Force strategic bomber chiefs, Air Force chiefs, what they all predict, that, that bombing should be enough. And it should have been enough, but it isn't because it's Nazi Germany, because it's Hitler in charge. But yeah, the, the damage is absolutely enormous. I mean, just imagine what it must have been like going through Europe in second half of 1945. I mean, city after city just destroyed. 
I mean, have you seen those photos of Berlin in 1945? I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's just the whole of the Tiergarten smashed. Just whole blocks just totally destroyed. This sort of skeletal shells of, of buildings, rubble covering every single... World. This is the capital of Germany. It's, it's just... It's incomprehensible. It, it's so far removed from what we what we expect today, what we can comprehend today. Uh, and yet it took till 1945. But I think what is interesting is if you if you accept that that bombing, strategic bombing is not effective until at the earliest, the spring of 1943, two years worth of heavy bombing on Germany, you know, it really, it really delivers. Uh, was was the plan for 44 was even the same as 43, but just more of the same? More of the same, really. I mean, <clears throat> there's more specific plans. So obviously there's a whole trying to get rid of, uh, trying to kind of wrest control of airspace over Northwest Europe in the first part of, of 1944, because that's an absolute 100% prerequisite for any invasion, cross-channel invasion. And, you know, obviously I'm talking about D-Day and Operation Overlord in June 1944. You know, you cannot do that unless you control the skies. Why do you need that? Well, because you need to be able to destroy bridges and marshalling yards and, and totally um, put a sto- uh, you know, spanner in the works of the Germans' ability to get to Normandy quickly. You know, you've got to race. You, you've got to get your own material, men and material across the channel, which is quite a slow process. You've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to do that by ships. Um, Germany, on paper, it should be much easier for them to reinforce the bridgehead in Normandy because they're already on land. So what you want to do is, is slow them up, and you do that by bombing bridges and railways and all the rest of it. Um, uh, but to do that, you really do need low-level bombers. And to do that, you have to have command of the skies, otherwise for the same reasons that Spitfires are pouncing on Stukas in 1940. Um, you know, they're going to get shot down by Messerschmitts and Focke Wolfs and all the rest of it. So you have to clear those guys. So that is absolutely essential. That means destroying all the infrastructure of the Luftwaffe, aircraft factories, um, Augsburg, um, Leipzig, uh, Brunswick and all this, where, where Focke Wolf and Messerschmitts... Yeah, that's big week. Um, so you want, to, you want to make sure that you've, you've, you've done that and that is achieved. Um, there is also kind of a further transportation plan, which is you're using strategic bomber forces to hit really big marshalling guards. There's a huge, great railway hub at Ham, for example, in Western Germany. Um, so you want to do that. And you're using the heavies, the strategic air force to do that. Then there is the um, uh, the, the, the problem with the V sites, uh, V1s and V2s, which are being developed. Now, we, you know, we have intelligence on this. We know that these are these missiles that are going to be sent over. So we are targeting those sites as well. Very difficult to hit, but heavy bombers are involved in that. Uh, but what is really interesting is the whole reason why we're attacking at night is because um, it's very dangerous to attack by day because of fighter, you know, fighters can see you. Um, whereas night fighters are not so effective. And, and flak actually is not very effective at all. You might have 15,000 um, heavy anti-aircraft guns in the, in, within Germany defending its skies, but actually the chance of a flak shell hitting your, your Lancaster or your Halifax is about 0.002%, whereas you know, if you're attacked by a Fokker Wolf, um, your chances of being hit are quite high. So it is fighters that pose the biggest threat to... To, um, to, 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 to bombers. So if you can negate that by attacking at night, then that's a good thing, you know, because you'll lose less bombers. But what happens is Germany wises up to the need for an air defence system and wises up to kind of improving its night fighter defence. And by the end of 1943, following the, the, the big attacks on, on Hamburg in July 1943, then suddenly their, their fighter defence is much better. Their night fighting capability is much improved. They've got many more. They're using ME-110s, which were, used to be day fighters as night fighters. They've got sort of some form of radar, which enables them to home in on, on bombers. And they've got, they're absolutely sort of bristling with weaponry. And they've developed this sort of particularly gruesome thing called Schrager Music, which is where you have a sort of 30 millimetre cannon, which is a big old shell, um, pointing at, you know, pointing upwards. So what you do is you fly underneath the Lancaster, where it has absolutely no protection whatsoever. It has a dorsal turret, but it doesn't have a ventral turret underneath. So it's got no weaponry underneath the uh, underneath the Lancaster, and you just so, so the Lancaster's kind of here. Your your one 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 zero or your Junkers eighty eight night fighter goes straight underneath it. Its guns are pointing upwards. Press the fire button. It's just good night, Charlie, to that Lancaster or that Halifax. You know th- that is the biggest threat. So the advantages in terms of safety of your force are are disappearing by attacking by night by the end of 1943, beginning of 1944. Whilst at the same time, Bomber Command's ability to attack precisely 
is not really there's not really much difference between how precise you can be whether you're attacking by day or by night such are the seismic shifts in the ability to bomb accurately with the development of navigational aids and bombing techniques and all the rest of it which are coming into play by the beginning of 1944 so so harris's thing is well the only thing we can really do effectively is just paste cities and paste them by night um so by by night you're losing accuracy uh, uh but it's safer and you're not very accurate so you might as well just smother all these cities that's the thinking behind it but by the beginning of 1944, that argument is sounding a bit hollow because actually Bomber Command has the capability to attack much more precisely um, and it is not much safer to be attacking by night as it is by day. Um, whereas what the Americans are saying, uh, argument is, well, yes, OK, but if we attack by day, we can be much more precise. We can hit proper industrial targets rather than civilian targets. Uh, we can be much more um, accurate. But again, those considerations are kind of sort of blurring by the beginning of 1944. And what actually the reason they continue doing the way they do is less to do with issues of accuracy. It's more, okay, you do your bit then, so you can do do that and we'll do our bit now. And, and, and you know, the Americans don't really want to be kind of sort of working quite so hand in glove with the British that they're all operating at night, for example. And similarly, there is an advantage for kind of attacking round the clock. So you never let up the Germans. You know, you think about those poor anti-aircraft gunners, you know, they're on kind of watch all the time you know if you've got if you've got to be on it 24 7 you've got to have double the amount of people to to man those guns because you know people can't just be manning them 24 hours of the day they've got to get some kip so that poses a whole greater strain on the german people and just imagine how debilitating it is if every time you're about to go to the factory suddenly the air raid siren goes off again and off you tramp and you know day and night so there is continued advantages of attacking round the clock and the americans attacking by day and the and the british attacking by night but the original advantages of attacking by night are have, have gone by 1944. Yeah, it's interesting. I always think the debate about bomber command, but the bombers, are very interesting because, on one, yes, it doesn't it doesn't shake Hitler's grip on power. Uh, it it um, German munitions production, aircraft production goes up. We all know the sort of we all know those stories. But it, but it's in the, in its uh, offensive against the so the V weapons or in marshalling yards and transport before and during and after D Day, it's a phenomenal success. Yeah, and there's the oil plan as well, which is Spots' idea. And, and Tui Spots is the um, U.S. commander of strategic U.S. U.S. commander of strategic air forces in Europe. So he's overall in charge of strategic air effort in Italy and from Britain and obviously in France as well. Um, and of course, there are the post Normandy. There are the tactical air forces which are increasingly operating from Northwest Europe as well. Um, and he, it's his idea to do the oil plan, and you know that is just targeting synthetic fuel plants and, and, and attacking oil targets. The, the only source of actual oil that the Germans have is from Plesti in Romania, and that is just hammered time and time and time and time again, mainly by 15th Air Force, which is operating in southern Italy. So, and that's a, that is that materially affects Germany's ability. Yeah, to completely. Work. Yeah, totally. I mean, they haven't got much fuel anyway. I mean, it's very interesting. You know, it's from 1944. Um, Britain's domestic use is something like 21.5 million gallons of fuel just in Britain alone. Germany's use full stop in 1944 is 4.5 million. So we are using four times the amount of fuel domestically than Germany is using in its in total war effort. I mean, and that's just Britain. So that doesn't include what Allied forces are doing in the ETO, you know, in Europe, in Northwest Europe in 1944. I mean, it, it's just insane. I mean, you know, they're, they're so behind the game, it's not true. Um, the Germans are, that is. Just quickly, uh, Dresden. Yes. Was it necessary? Was it a yeah, crime? Completely. War no, target? Just, legitimate target? Totally legitimate target. I mean, I think, I think, the, I think the... Okay, so what, what one has to understand is, first of all, Dresden is an absolute hotbed of Nazism. Uh, and actually, I've just been recently looking at footage of Dresden's Jews being kicked out and, and packed off and being booted out of their homes. And, you know, amateur filmmakers are filming this for fun. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel massively sympathetic. And, and there is no question that the vast majority of German people knew what was going on. Now, I'm not saying that a 19-year-old soldier at the front in Italy has, you know, knows about the death camps or anything like that. But most Germans know there is something bad going on in the East. You know, and it's sort of, it's almost Im implied by um, by Goebbels in his Sports Palace 
speech in February 1943 where he goes, you know, we're in this now. We're all in it together. We're up the creek. You know, we have to have total war. Are you up for it? And everyone sort of goes, you know, see Carl, all the rest of it. I mean, you know, so, so there is this this kind of sort of Faustian pact. You know, you you are, you're guilty too. You backed us. You were in on this. We're all in it together. And, you know, and if you don't pull your weight, we're absolutely screwed. And, and, and so there is, you know, and if you have... If you have lots and lots of people making amateur, taking amateur photographs of atrocities in the East and, and taking cine footage of things going on in the East and sending them back to Germany to be developed, those developers are going to see that because they're developing it. And he's going to talk to his mate and he's going to talk to his mate. People are going to know. They just they just are. So they're all in it. They are up to their necks in it. And Dresden has something like <coughs> 127 factories doing war work. It is... Um, the it hasn't been bombed very much, so the air defense defenses in um, in Dresden are very poor, and the public shelters have been woefully starved by the Nazi Goliter and and his acolytes in in Dresden. So they're just it's just not fit for purpose, and that is their problem. You know that is their fault for not organizing that. It's also a big railway hub. And it's actually the Russians that ask us to bomb it because that railway hub is feeding troops into the southern eastern front. It's also um, feeding troops into northern Italy. So it is a it is a kind of a big nodal point. So as a, as a military target, he is as justified as any. Where there is a, a sort of moral question mark is, did they need to target put the targets on the centre of the city? You know, what's wrong with hitting the marshalling yards? What's wrong with actually hitting those huge barracks kind of, you know, a mile and a half to the north of the city? Why not there? Um, they don't. They hit, they hit the centre of it. And I think that is the only real question mark. I mean, you know, the fire storm happens. Um, Goebbels makes huge play of it, you know, 120,000 killed. It wasn't anything like that. It was, you know, I say only in inverted commas, 25,000, 20 to 25,000. It's still a lot, but it's one in 20 rather than, you know, one in two or whatever, you know, um, 80% is which was basically what, what Goebbels was saying. Um, you know, we and why do we keep focusing about Dresden? I mean, I mean, you know, Forfine was, was hit... Ten days later, and one in four were killed in the firestorm. In that, you know, Wurzburg was destroyed. I think in early March or very end of February. Um, you know, eighty percent destroyed. Wurzburg really didn't have any factories in it at all. It was just flattening it. And and this was. And I think what you also have to say is 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 be very careful not to put kind of third decade of the twenty first century sensibilities onto something that happened. You know, nearly 80 years ago. It's nearly 75 years ago. You know, it was a different world then. You can only do what you can do with the kit you've got. And although um, levels of uh, ability to bomb accurately are much greater by 1945 than they are in, say, 1942 or even 1943, even so, you know, Britain has been in that war a long time. It's expended a huge amount of effort, lives and everything in trying to bring Germany to heel. Germans have argued, well, you know, you accuse us of the Holocaust, but, you know, you were doing a Holocaust on us by bombing all our cities. There's a massive difference, of course, is that the moment the war ends, we'll stop bombing the cities. Whereas the moment the war ends in favour of Germany, the killing will continue until there's no Jews and gypsies and all the rest of it left anywhere in Europe. So it's a completely different scenario and it's not comparable at all. And, and I think if there is if there is a kind of level of frustration going on in the kind of in, in the viciousness of the bombing in early by RF bomber command in the early part of 1945 I do think it's sort of understandable if not entirely justified so last question uh, you, so you think the strategic bombing campaign over Europe shortened the war 100% yeah 100% I mean the RF alone dropped very nearly a million tonnes of bombs on Germany. You know, the effect that has. I mean, you know, when, when you start sort of breaking down the Nazi economy and you start breaking down actually what is happening, their ability to fight is just being degraded all the time by this kind of war over the air. You know, it is it is absolutely the kind of the, the fifth front. And the abilities of the Germans to kind of to keep going is just, it's just being made harder and harder and harder. I, I think... I think there is, um, yeah. I think I think bomb, the bombing war definitely has a has a massive effect, massive massive effect. I mean, you you just you just can't function properly when you're being hammered every two minutes. James Holland, you, what a, another tour de force from you. You got various books that, that you got your smash hit bestseller, 
out at the moment, <laughs> D-Day. Normandy 44. Normandy, rather. Yeah. Um, but people can go and check out your book on Big Week. I mean, yeah. lots, you've written lots of books. Well, Big Week's, Big Week's quite nice. Well, it, was, it was fun to do. And although I take a kind of quite short period of time from kind of the summer of 1943 through to the end of February 1944... It does sort of go. It does do the backstory. So it is. You can. You can really. You know. If you. If you want to find out about the bomber war, that that will tell you kind of pretty much all you need to know. And then your Battle of Britain is brilliant. I very much enjoyed that book. Yeah. Thank uh, you. And then you've got um, a big. You got smash it. You're your own smash it podcast now. That's you and Al Murray. Yeah. Yeah. Me and Al. We're doing our stuff. That's all. Good we fun. have ways. We have ways of making you talk. That's right. And then, and you're right. I, I always. I mean, I just despair. You got another book coming out soon, haven't you? Yeah, Sicily in the autumn. God. Got to write it first, though. Congratulations. Well, I'm sure you're, knowing you, you're churning through it. <laughs> Thanks very much, buddy. Yeah, the keyboard's on fire. <laughs> Cheers, Dan. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's tough world out there law of the jungle out there and i need all the fire support i can get so that will boost it up the charts it's so tiresome but if you could do it i'd be very very grateful thank you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs>